0: Let's pray together. Our gracious and loving God, thank you for your gentle presence. We have come once again to experience your light. Open our hearts and minds to your generous grace. Captivate us, challenge us, stretch us. In the name of Jesus, Messiah and Lord. Amen. For hundreds of years, South Africa was known for its apartheid, keeping the races separate, having one race superior to another. Emerging from that was uh, a voice uh, very clearly saying, This is not right. His name was Nelson Mandela for that he was put in prison for 25 years and during that time people lit candles and put them in the window cells as a symbol of hope even though it looked hopeless it looked as though apartheid would continue for hundreds of additional years but the candles burned And after 25 years, very, very unexpectedly, the president of the country, de Klerk, went to prison to talk with Mandela. A short time after that, he was released from prison. Then the unexpected happened. Mandela became president of the country. And at the celebration, he had invited many people, including some very unexpected people. And they were the prison guards that had been watching over Mandela during that 25 years. So the candles burned in what appeared to be a situation of hopelessness. Today, the candles are burning here, around us, and before us. They stand as symbols of hope for East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church. Today we'll give attention to the Gospel of Matthew from the reading that Rose read just a moment ago. And the central person in the storyline is John, known as John the Baptist. John was a Jew, the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah. He was six months older than his cousin, by the name of Jesus. In his adult years, he baptized hundreds of people, including his cousin, Jesus. Is it any wonder that John's tag name was John the Baptist? Not Anabaptist? you understand. Anabaptists appeared on the scene 1,500 years later, and many of whom morphed into Mennonites. Even though we don't get the name from John the Baptist, we have some commonality with him, but that will save for another time. Now to our text. Verse 1 is a transition from the previous chapter, and Jesus knew that John had been arrested and was in prison. The prison cell was probably in a fortress near the Dead Sea on a mountaintop 1,600 feet above sea level. Now to our text. Verse 1 is the transition from the previous chapter. John knew that Jesus had been in prison, and the prison cell was not of great comfort to John. In ancient times, prisoners were cared for by family and friends. News passed freely between the prison and outside. So John knew something of what was going on, With Jesus, and although Jesus was aware that John was in prison, it is not very probable that Jesus visited him. All three synoptic gospels tell about John's imprisonment. It goes like this Herod Antipas arrested John and bound him and put him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother, Philip. John had spoken sharp words to Herod. It is not lawful to have Herodias as your wife. At that point, Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John to be a prophet. Well, John was in prison for more than a year in all probability. It was a difficult and lonely time and place. In thinking about his past experiences with Jesus, he probably reflected on the time that he baptized him. Remembering the awesome display of God's presence and blessing, it was a charisma of the Holy Spirit par excellence. After Jesus was baptized, he came out of the water and the heaven opened and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. The voice of God resounded, this is my son whom I love. I am well pleased with him. Surely, John caught the euphoria of that occasion. But now he was depressed, had doubts whether Jesus was the Messiah. In his dark prison cell, he had little sense of the open heavens and the descending dove. Several disciples visited John, and even though earlier he had experienced Jesus as Messiah, he began to have doubts. And he told the disciples about his doubts, and they, in turn, took the word to Jesus. Jesus' response was, well, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind are receiving sight, the lame are walking, the lepers are being cleansed, deaf are hearing, dead are being raised. And the poor are receiving good news. Well, this was not new information to John. He had heard it all before. But he still didn't seem to grasp fully what kind of Messiah Jesus was. In his preaching, he had cast Jesus as a person of judgment with a winnowing fork in his hand clearing the threshing floor, saving the wheat, but burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. The report the disciples brought back to John portrayed Jesus much more as a person of compassion, less condemnation. So there sits John, alone in his dark prison cell. It was his own winter solstice. We might be critical of John for what has often been perceived as lapse of faith. John knew about the promise in Isaiah 61 that the Messiah would bring liberty to the captives and open the prison to those who are bound. He seemed to have reason to doubt. If Jesus is the promised Messiah, why doesn't he come and let me out of jail? Is there any wonder that John had doubts? Several years ago, when Don Yoder-Harms was pastor here, Alan and Ruth Ann Shirk were here for the Advent season with their six-year-old grandson, Owen. During the sermon, Owen was happily engaged with pencil and paper, and he seemed not to know what was going on in the sermon. But Don mentioned That when Mary was a teenager, perhaps 14 or 15, an angel told her she was going to have a baby. Owen's head popped up, and he said to the hearing of everyone, What? John was not the only one in scripture who experienced puzzlement and doubt. When the angel appeared to Mary, she was startled, perplexed, confused, thoroughly shaken. In her fright and puzzlement, it would not surprise me if Mary would have said, What? Perhaps she experienced some doubt whether this promise would actually come true. Years ago, as pastor, in a sermon, I proposed that holding doubt and faith together can deepen one's faith. That having doubt does not mean you do not have faith. After the service, a dear 60-year-old grandmother came and told me that this was a new thought to her. She said, although she had committed her life to Christ many years earlier, she had ongoing doubts. She had been taught that doubt mitigates against faith. That doubt is sin. She left the worship service that day with a sense that doubt can be complementary to faith. Although the death of Jesus is not in today's storyline, it is recorded in other parts of Matthew and in Mark and Luke. It goes like this On Herod's birthday, Salome, the daughter of Herodias, this was Herod's stepdaughter, danced at a party. This pleased Herod so much, he promised to give Salome whatever she and her mother asked for. Salome, prompted by her mother, took this request to Herod, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. But King Herod wanted to protect John. He knew that John was a righteous man. The king was grieved, but because of his oath, he ordered the wish to be granted. So he arranged to have John beheaded in prison. John's head was brought on a platter and presented to the girl who carried it to her mother. Then John's disciples came and took John's body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. John didn't live long enough to hear the rest of the story about the Messiah, that Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, had his own struggles, his own fears, and his own doubts. But he opted for crucifixion and, in turn, became the risen Christ. Even though John did not have this story, to bolster his faith, the way he faced his death is surely indication that he was firm in his faith. He surely believed that Jesus is the Messiah, although it would cost him his life. We have no record that Jesus reprimanded John for his doubt. Rather, he called him a prophet, in fact, more than a prophet, All four of the Gospels portray John as forerunner of the Messiah. He played a decisive role in salvation history, ushering in the Messianic Age, even though he did not see its full development. John, that charismatic leader, had doubts but he models the importance of holding doubt and faith together. That gives us a lot of room to go into the deepest places of our own doubts and fears. December tends to be a time of darkness and depression. Therapists and pastors save room on their calendars in December to meet with people who are experiencing these moods. Depression, anxiety, a sense of hopelessness, and other similar moods are among the main health conditions for 40 million people in the United States. Among these moods, Lancaster County has these as the top five of their problems. An African proverb says, if you want to go quickly, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. It's important to dig deeply into doubt, to honor it. It is a vital part of faith, but it's best not to travel alone. Naming our doubts and digging deeply into them in the context of our congregation is an opportunity. It is invitational. Doing so permits us to go into our faith with our entire selves. This is a sign of hope. It's good news. Jan Richardson has said, Hope does not depend on our mood or disposition or desire. Hope does not wait until we are ready for it, until we have prepared ourselves for its arrival. Hope does not hold itself apart from us until we have worked through the worst of our sorrow and anger and fear, and I would add, our doubt. This is precisely where hope seeks us out, standing with us in the midst of what weighs us down most heavily. So in Advent, we light candles. They help stave off darkness. So today we wait, but with assurance that those who wait in darkness will see a great light. May it be so.